Hello, I'm Terry Lee, and this is a very special episode of Fantastic Noise, recorded at a BEDS talk event at the University of Bedfordshire, Luton campus, on Wednesday, the 6th of February. Fantastic Noise. Fantastic Noise. Fantastic Noise. Fantastic Noise. A podcast about making radio from the University of Bedfordshire. So uh, to those in front of me and in this room, thank you for your presence this evening. For those listening to this as a podcast, uh, thank you for your ears. And for those watching on Facebook, thanks for your time. Thanks all round. Fantastic Noise is all about encouraging those who want to make radio think about issues they might not have previously and to listen to as much radio and podcasting as they can. Good radio and podcasting. So normally I include the voices of real life non-radio people talking about something that they enjoy listening to. But with an audience here in front of us, right here, I thought this evening we'd try a live version and do it a bit differently. So hopefully Charlotte, with her roaming mic, has found three volunteers who are willing to talk to us for 20 seconds each to tell us what we should be listening to. What are you listening to? I'm Robin. Um, I present at CSR, community and student radio station based in Canterbury. And I enjoy listening to Racco Figure on Six Music, the, I'm going to be careful about say this, the Hardcore Listing podcast, which is a list of top five done in a comedic manner from Scroobius Pip and the Distraction, Distraction Pieces Network. And what else do I, what have I enjoyed recently? Oh, um, What's her name? The woman from Weekly White, Philomena Kunk, Diane Morgan, did a really good show over Christmas on Six Music, and I wish they'd give her a permanent slot on the stage. Hi, I'm Megan. Um, at the moment, I really enjoy listening to BBC Radio One, especially Greg James and Grimmy in the morning, um, in the afternoons. Um, I also listen to Capital FM a lot too, especially Roman Kemp. I really like his shows at the moment. Megan naming two radio stations that are very much aiming at her demographic, so they're doing the right job, obviously. And person number three. Hello, I'm Clive Glover from Radio Verulam in St Albans, and I obviously listen to my own station quite a lot, but I also like listening to um, documentaries and news uh, programmes on Radio 4 particularly, and the World Service, which is very good. Thank you so much, Clive, and thank you all. So, it's time we welcomed our first guest to the stage. He's most well known for his long-running smash hit podcast, The Football Ramble, which launched in 2007. He's since co-founded Radio Stakhanov, a podcast production company and publisher, which has topped the iTunes podcast charts with Jackmates, or uh, how, how do you say, is it, is it just Jackmates, but with excessive number of A's in the title? Yes. Yeah, Jackmates, so. Happy Hour, and Berkhamsted Revisited. He's also a regular part of TalkSport's season ticket, as well as occasionally appearing in other programmes in their schedule. So please give a big welcome to Luke Moore. It's the first time I've actually been welcomed into a university, so thank you for that. (laughs) So, Luke, thank you for coming. Uh, For the benefit of people here today, a brief introduction as to how it all began 10 years ago or over 10 years ago. What was the Football Ramble then and and what has happened since? Um, The Football Ramble was an extension of a Saturday sports show uh, we did at University Radio in 
Surrey um, at Farnborough College of Technology. I basically failed all my A-levels and uh, they were the only place that would take me, begrudgingly. Uh, and I met the guys who I then formed the Football Ramble with in 2007. So I graduated in 2002. A friend of mine I was on the radio station, uh, yeah, the radio station with, said, have you heard of, of podcasting? I said, I hadn't. And he said, look, this is, this is what it is. Um, do you want to do, do a football show similar to our Saturday sports show? I said, yes. And um, it took 12 years to become an overnight success, I guess. <laughs> so bringing the ramble back to where you are today, you helpfully released a behind the scenes video last week. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, you've you been releasing. Well, yeah, I think we oh, are. We, 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 you've actually been releasing some behind the scenes videos yeah. um, for the last couple of weeks now. So let's have a quick watch of one of those videos. So really, if you're nine divisions below, then then you you've almost definitely got three. Yeah, exactly. I yeah. love that we're ending this special <laughs> on the most ridiculous one that actually exists. <laughs> yeah. That is more ridiculous than all these ones that have been suggested. I was actually told at school that I would never make a living mucking around all day. <laughs> <laughs> well. I mean, looking at that, you can tell it's not just recorded in a living room. You've got some proper facilities yeah. going on uh, and you've got visual content to promote mm -hmm. what you're doing. And visual content to promote radio and podcasts, it's all the rage. Um, is promoting your podcast on YouTube, something that Radio Stakhanov is actively pursuing now to draw new audiences in? Um, I, think, I think it's important. I think it gives you a bit of added extra. I think um, when you've got a studio uh, and because essentially we, we pulled our money from we, that we made from the podcast and we now hire an office and we built a studio in that and it's fully um, visually capable so it's, it's got cameras was it there when you, when you came to see it was yes, it there it that, was, yeah, so the cameras yeah. are all set up and, and so the reason for that is it gives people an added way of being able to find us but it also gives people an idea of, of what it looks like to make a show um, how we record it and, and I'm pretty keen to to give people that insight because I think, uh, personally, if it were me, I'd be interested in how it's made and, 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 and it just gives us a bit extra. And, and in terms of people that maybe view YouTube videos as a, a, a source of fun, in, fact, in, in this room, because we've got an interesting mix of people, how many people regularly watch YouTube videos of, of any kind? You put your hands up if you do. Everyone, basically. <laughs> Lots of people do, which is great. So there's an audience out in Naomi too. <laughs> um, but, and there are, there are YouTubers like Jack Mate, who yeah. is now part of the Radio Sakana podcast. Yeah, so, so Radio Sakana is, um, is the podcast network that we developed because we, at, at that point, we were only known for making football shows. And we wanted to be more ambitious than that and make more different types of shows. And so we, we, we developed a podcast network because we had all the facilities there to be able to make it. And Jack is a popular YouTuber. I think he's got a million YouTube subscribers. He wanted to, to, to move into podcasting. And I, I sort of knew him anyway. And so he comes in and records his podcast at our, um, at our studio. And the reason that's a benefit to him is because, of course, he gets it automatically recorded for video. So he can then share that on his YouTube channel as well. So it's sort of matched up quite quite nicely. How many, you don't have to give me exact numbers, but roughly how many listeners or downloads do your podcasts need to, to make, make them successful? And how do they make money as well? Well, in terms of the success of it, it depends. I mean, we talked about Berkhamstead Revisited, which is a show that we started from scratch with two people who, who weren't known, who didn't have an audience. So it's from a standing start. So I wouldn't judge that success the same way I would judge a show that, you know, you know, if David Beckham wants to make a show, I mean, it's going to be different, right? Sure. He'd go somewhere else, but <laughs> if, he, if, he, if he came in, that'd be great. But um, 
and in terms of making the money, it's not just the downloads you need, it's the, it's the monetized downloads. So it's, the, it's not just the amount of people that hear the show, it's how many of them have adverts served up to them and sponsorship messages served up to them in, in that way. So we can then monetize that and make money. But um, in terms of how many downloads you need to be successful, I guess it just depends on what you, what you judge success to be, I guess. Okay, and, and is, there a, is, is there a big market for, for advertising? Like, the, are, are there advertisers yeah. really willing to spend well, on it's growing. It's, a net, it's, a, it's, a, it's an industry that's growing, I think, 75% year on year, which if you compare that to other advertising areas, TV, digital, um, pro probably even radio as well, it's markedly different. I think, I think podcasting is taking more and more of advertising budgets as, as podcasting becomes more and more fashionable. We went from, a, I think as, a, as an industry, we went from a situation where literally no one knew what a podcast was to everyone wanting to make one, mm. and there was sort of no in-between. So in many ways, it, you're still trying to catch up, really. You guys um, have clearly made an investment in podcasting by moving into your new facilities and all the cameras, yeah. and, and you can see the technology you've got there. So I guess you're considering that the, there is a future in podcasting for a while yet. Well, I hope so. <laughs> Yeah, I'll we'll have to sell all the equipment off. To <laughs> <laughs> keep me going for a little while, but I want to just talk very briefly about podcasting generally. I've got some stats here. It's boomed in popularity in, in the last few years. In September, Ofcom released some enlightening statistics. The number of weekly podcast listeners has almost doubled in five years. So there are 3.2 million uh, in 2013 and 5.9 million in 2018. Uh, the increase is across all age groups, but the steepest growth is um, now among young people aged 15 to 24. So young people are listening to podcasts. Around one in five now listening to podcasts every week. And half of podcast listeners are under 35, which I thought was really interesting, whilst um, only 29% of traditional radio listeners are under 35. This rises to 49% for podcasts. So younger people are increasingly choosing podcasts over traditional radio uh, if indeed you want to make comparisons between the two because you can as as luke has demonstrating by being a, a very regular presenter on Talksport, you can do both as well yeah i don't think that i don't think they have to be rivals i think it's different for different different things you know what i mean you know radio clearly by its nature is 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 live and 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 it's got a great amount of urgency for that and of course you're not going to be able to replicate the coverage of a live event or a live sport or a you know a, you know, a, p a political event in, in a podcast I mean, you can later obviously but it's not the same thing sure um but podcasting obviously gives you a lot of flexibility so i think i think there's room for i do think there is room for both yeah what is it do you think that appeals about podcasts is it the convenience of them or, or the content of them I hope it's both. I mean, I got, I got into podcasting because I, I didn't think there was any path to me getting a job in radio, which is what I wanted to do. I didn't have any contacts in London in, in, for the national radio station. I didn't have any contacts in local radio. And this gave me an idea of what I could, what I could do and I could learn from, make mistakes, learn from them. Because we started off with no listeners for absolutely ages. I mean, it took four or five years for anyone to really care. And then you can make all your mistakes uh, and you're not answerable to anyone, which I do think is important because it felt to me at the time that in radio there were certain ways you had to do things and if you didn't do it that way and you didn't have the certain sound or, or voice or the similar certain type of character it wasn't really, wasn't really going to work for you so podcasting to me was a, was a was an was an angle in and i think historically you would see it as a stepping stone so you've done your done your sort of training and your apprenticeship in podcast and then you kind of can go into radio but actually 
I'm fortunately in a position now where I don't actually I don't need to do radio as a job. I just want to do it because I enjoy doing it. Mm. And podcasting can be a means to an end of, in, in, its, in itself if it's done if it's done properly. How many people in the room listen to podcasts? Quite a few. And and just a couple of uh, feel free to shout out. Where do you listen to podcasts? Where are you listening when you are listening? Public transport. So like on a bus or something. Yeah. Any, anyone else? Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Do you listen to my show in the shower? <laughs> <laughs> There's a thought. And um, uh, I, I tell you what, I listen to podcasts mostly in my car. I plug yeah. my I plug my phone to the car radio, aux lead, yeah. and 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 listen to to things like the football podcast and other podcasts as yeah. well. Um, and I find it incredibly convenient. Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, look, I th the most the most uh, common one we get is people uh, commuting in and out of work so they mm -hmm. can line their podcast up for their commute so we try and get our shows out you know latest on 5 a.m of that day because then we catch people coming in on the commute into work and all that kind of stuff if you're commuting to work before 5 a.m there's no helping you nothing we can do for you there um so that that's that's the most common we get people running people doing it to, to me i still do listen to a lot of radio if i get home from work and i'm cooking or doing something around the house i will put the radio on i think to me podcast it's just a personal opinion but to me podcasting it's more often than not in headphones, so it's a bit more personal. And I find it m a bit more engaging, where for me, radio is more of a sort of you can dip in and out of it kind of thing. We're going to be talking more about podcasting because we're going to gradually introduce members uh, of the panel to the front here. Uh, and there will be an opportunity for questions from you guys in the audience at the end as well. So do save up your questions for then. Uh, Luke, stay where you are. It's time for us to welcome our next guest to this special BEDS talk. Uh, following her graduation from Southampton Solent University in 2014, she has worked at a number of radio organizations, including Transmission Roundhouse, Salador, KISS, and her present employer, Virgin Radio. She has been an active Student Radio Association member for over four years, taking on the role of the Southeast Regional Officer and Marketing Officer before becoming Chair in 2017. Uh, please give your biggest whoops and cheers for Naomi Oiku. Thank you, Naomi, uh, for being here. Really good to have you. As the Chair of the Student Radio Association, or SRA, as I will shorten it to, uh, we thought that you'd be a highly appropriate guest. The SRA even mentions the future of radio in its social media banner pictures. With this in mind, what do you think students bring to the world of radio and podcasting? Um, I think they bring fresh, new, creative ideas. Um, they definitely bring, I don't know, it's like, yeah, new creative ideas, I think, um, something different. And I think in student radio, when you get involved in student radio, there's room to make mistakes mm. and there's room to do things differently how you wouldn't do, I don't know, say on commercial radio or national radio. Mm. You've got a lot of success stories from student radio now. Yeah. Um, and, and you're not afraid to shout about them either. That's what I quite like about the Student Radio Association. You're really good at getting your success stories, not just talking about student radio, but you bring them back to your events and, and things yeah. like that. Now, when I went to uh, university, I, I went to the university in, in, in Norwich, UEA, and mm -hmm. I was there at the same time as Greg James, and we did student radio at the same time. And, you know, I thought maybe I'd present the Radio <laughs> 1 breakfast show one day, and, and he got there first. <laughs> um, but uh, you'll, you get Greg back at events, like even, yeah. even now, mm -hmm. and that's fantastic. How, how do you do that? 
Um, I think when you're involved with the student radio, well, student radio association, it's sort of like a community and like a family. And I think people do appreciate being involved with student radio and appreciate the organisation. They want to give back what they've sort of gained and the experience and the knowledge they've gained um, being in student radio. There are loads of examples of innovative radio tech and content that I always learn about when I go to student radio association events. Mm -hmm. And there was one particular thing that I learned about this year from the University of York called You Are Spy. Yeah. Um, I, I, don't know, I, I don't know how much you know about You Are Spy, and you can maybe fill gaps if you know more than me. But essentially, it's like an interactive audio game mm -hmm. where you walk around different parts of the campus and you get a different part of the story fed into your, mm -hmm. like, presumably your smartphone. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of, um, I don't know if you've seen it, Bandersnatch on Netflix. Has, so has everyone seen Bandersnatch on Netflix? I mean, yeah. not everyone, surely, but, but have... Uh, Maybe we should quickly explain what that is. That's um, uh, Black Mirror, the Charlie Brooker series of dystopian technology future um, short stories. And the latest one on Netflix is a choose-your-own-adventure version. So you have to watch it with the controller in your hand, constantly selecting options like, am I going to have Cocoa Pops or something else yeah. for breakfast? And, and and then later it gets really dark. It's like, am I going to murder my father? And it's brilliant, but, but dark. But yeah, you're right. There is similarity there. Mm -hmm. Having spoken to some of those students, I get the feeling that, that they've inspired people from the professional radio industry mm -hmm. to, to take on those ideas, develop them further. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what student radio is so good at. And, and, and the other thing is that there's so many eager learners in the world of student yeah. radio. I mean, you're, you're an example. You're at Virgin Radio at the moment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, what, what, what sort of jobs are you doing with Virgin Radio? As part Gosh, of? it's so varied. So I'm assistant producer at Virgin Radio. Um, and not every day is the same. So you come in, you can support presenters. Uh, you're getting involved with social media, editing videos, editing audio. So it's completely different day in and day out, which is so good about radio, I think, because I don't know, you enjoy it so much, it doesn't feel like you're working. You just said editing videos. Yeah, exactly. Tell, tell, tell us about that and how that fits in. Um, so uh, recently Chris Evans started, so we're editing a lot of videos in terms of getting that out on social media. So there's so many different platforms that radio can get involved with, podcasting, visualisation, and it's just, yeah, it's so many different things and so many different avenues to promote radio itself. When I was presenting Breakfast Radio in Norwich, one of my favourite things about it was the fact that I could come in with t-shirts, shorts and flip-flops yeah. <laughs> no and, and no one could see me, whereas that's out of date now it seems yeah. and there are cameras everywhere and, and, and recorded content and, and certainly um, I know that Global in Leicester Square, the, mm -hmm. the way that they set up their studios, yeah. it's like their TV studios, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's insane, phen phenomenal, it? yeah it really is. Um, Naomi, I'd suggest the SRA does a great job in nurturing and championing student radio. Uh, student Radio Awards, they're a fantastic event enjoyed by hundreds of students and industry professionals. You also have an annual conference full of workshops and activities. Where is it happening this year? In Swansea this year. Swansea this year. Mm -hmm. uh, I recommend if you, uh, if you can, especially any of my students here, consider going along. Uh, last year it took place in Norwich, yeah. um, which as I say was where I studied at university. It's where I made my first radio uh, as well. So here's a short clip showing some of the goings on from that conference.
just at the end of that video, Naomi, there was a shot where there looked to be a judging panel and people yeah. getting to... What, can you explain what that was? Um, so it's Demo Factor. Um, you have four judges and you submit a demo prior to conference. Um, and it basically gets paid out to um, the judges and the students that attend the conference. And um, you can cross, well, obviously press the buzzer and that'll be um, that judges out and they want to stop listening. Um, but you can also go also golden buzzer, so it's like Britain's Got Talent. <laughs> so it's like the four golden buzzers. Well, one golden buzzer and four red buzzers. Amazing. And, and, and is it popular? Do students really want to put themselves through that? It's quite brutal. It's like you're literally putting yourself in front of judges and um, the students and they do rip into you and they do, do they give constructive feedback but it's really good it's so really who fun. are who are the judges i know they must change but who generally are the judges in terms um, of their roles so the main judge is chris north um, and he usually has a variety of judges from like bauer um global and and just to explain chris north is a talent scout he works for a talent agency called north media talent um and he works really well with the judges and um finding new talent and helping presenters giving them advice on different things Brilliant. So, so they're, they're actually getting quite a lot, but like, although it must be in some ways horrible yeah. if, if, if your demo wasn't very good, mm -hmm. they are learning from the very best yeah. as a result. Mm -hmm. How interesting. Do you think that young people are generally engaged in radio, Naomi? I used to listen on my radio alarm clock. No one has those anymore. Uh, but I, I just recently swapped my beloved old radio set for a smart speaker. Uh, I get to listen to radio until my five-year-old daughter comes in and asks Alexa for Baby Shark. So <laughs> how, how do we keep radio relevant for younger audiences? Um, I think with a younger audience, their attention span is a lot lower mm. um, compared to, like you were saying before, in terms of listening to radio when you were younger. So I think, like I mentioned earlier, being involved with like social media, uh, making sure we post on different platforms, visualisation is a massive thing as well, and it's just sort of making sure it's you're getting them out on different channels, different platforms, so people can sort of access it in different ways. Do you think, um, do you think you talked about the attention span, so yeah. ultimately is it about getting content that people <coughs> want to hear immediately grabbable, is that? Um, yeah, I think so. Okay, and, and so traditional radio, maybe, that's why it doesn't appeal as much as it used to, to, to younger audiences. Um, to a certain extent. So I think with podcasting, it's really useful because I think someone mentioned they listened to, um, what was it, Greg James in the morning. Mm. And having that podcast and having the best bits in a podcast at the end of the week is probably a lot easier for younger people who might not want to get up early in the mornings or might not have time to listen to a full radio show. One of the, this is, I'm showing, showing my age is here, but what happened to the charts on the radio? Oh, I know, I know yeah. they're, they're what you can hear some charts still yeah. on the radio on, on Fridays, I think mm -hmm. now. Um, but that used to be huge. I used to mm -hmm. tune in to the radio. Who, who, who used to actually tune in on a Sunday afternoon? Yeah. yeah? <laughs> and, and, and listen to and record the charts and, yeah. and things like that and make their own play. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and over the age of 30 basically put their hand on <laughs> No one else. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and now, do you think it's because Spotify and things like that exist that yeah. charts are no, no longer followed? If you want a chart, you can go online and have a look at mm -hmm. it. You don't necessarily need to listen to the, the rundown. Mm -hmm. Naomi, thank you. Stay, stay where you are. I'm about to invite our final guest to the stage. 
stage, the front, <laughs> call it a stage, the sunken stage. He's a senior lecturer in radio at the University of Bedfordshire. He's worked as a producer and presenter on stations in the UK and Europe before becoming a broadcast consultant specialising in technology and community-based broadcasting. He calls himself a poacher-turned-gamekeeper because he used to be a part of the Ofcom radio team and before that he was quite a big name in the pirate radio world. He is also operating a uh, Ofcom small-scale DAB trial in Norwich, which he's done since September 2015. So please welcome my friend and colleague, Dr. Laurie Hallett. Hello, Laurie. Thank you for, thank you for coming all this way. Um, so, Laurie, we're talking about the future of radio, and thanks to painfully slow parliamentary and government body procedures to pass these things through, one thing I can safely predict for the future is the rollout of small-scale digital audio broadcasting across the UK, or SSDAB as we tend to call it. Now, you currently look after Future Digital in Norwich, and there's the logo on the screen, and that's part of a trial of the SSDAB platform in this country. So you know a thing or two about small-scale DAB. Could you explain what it is to people here? Gee, thanks, Terry. Um, okay, uh, small-scale DAB, if you think about it, DAB uh, is the predominant platform on which people listen to digital radio. So it, it's much more used than, for example, listening to uh, your, your TV, and at the moment it eclipses smart speakers by a very long way. That might not be the case in a couple of years' time, but at the moment it's, it is the predominant digital platform. The problem with it is that it was invented in the 1990s, so not that long ago, and in its early forms, it was very expensive in terms of infrastructure. And that meant that although the BBC could use it and Global and Bauer could use it, small-scale broadcasters, smaller commercial stations, for example, Celador that you used to work for, uh, or community radio stations, couldn't afford to get on the platform. It was very expensive, and that was because there was a lot of proprietary uh, technology involved. So. Uh, the Canadians were the people that decided to solve this problem. They worked on open source versions of the infrastructure that's needed to deliver DAB. And uh, they did that for a while. The European Broadcasting Union took it over. And then Ofcom uh, decided to license a trial. So it's all free open source software running on simple common computers with small cost-effective transmitters. Um, it costs about the same to run a DAB multiplex to say cover, let's talk about Norwich, if it costs you £20,000 to set up a transmitter for one FM station, it costs you about £20,000 to set up a DAB network which can carry 20 stations. So it's incredibly cost effective. Who in the room listens on a DAB radio to radio from time to time? Some hands, yeah? Quite a few of you. Good. Who? still doesn't quite know what DAB radio is. Don't be afraid. Yeah, there's a couple of people in the room. I'm, there's always, there's always going to be some people because ultimately it's a radio. And, and saying DAB sometimes is more confusing than it needs to be, but it's digital radio. Well, I get into trouble over this because I always think that actually radio is the content. It's curated audio of some sort or another. And the platform is really not very relevant. What we want is to be able to listen to what we want to listen to when we want to listen to it simply and straightforwardly. And DAB helps that, for example, in the car. If you've got a car radio with DAB, you have a massively larger choice of stations than you do if you've just got an FM radio. But the fundamental difference between that and what's been talked about earlier in terms of podcasting and listen again services and smart speakers is that you're still tied to, if you like, the tyranny of the schedule. 
somebody has to schedule that and if it suits you and you can listen to it well that's great but actually people's lives are very busy and I completely understand why young people in particular who aren't set in their ways like some of us might be Terry um, <laughs> might decide that actually you know what podcasting is much more effective even if it is a podcast of a radio program rather than a specific uh, program because for example I love Guy Garvey's finest hour on six music but I'm out going for a walk or doing something on a Sunday, so I'll listen to that as a podcast. It's the convenience factor that matters. So if nobody cares whether it's a DAB radio or an FM radio or whatever, they just care that they get what they want to listen to when they want to listen to it, and they want that to be an easy, painless and reliable process. DAB was always too expensive for small community radio stations to be on before, and you've, you've talked about this, but. Does SSDAB or will SSDAB give these stations an opportunity to get onto DAB radios and, and will this open doors for uh, student radio for example to get on DAB and even networks like Luke maybe they could loop a load of podcasts and put that on a channel is that possible absolutely I mean we've already seen that. I think in Brighton the the uh, student radio stations already on the small-scale DAB B mucks um, and there are conversations being had by some of the experimental muxes to get other student radio stations on board and I'm, I'm certain that if we had a DAB multiplex in Luton or in Bedford that Radio Lab would be on it uh, it's, it, frankly, it's a foregone conclusion. The costs are so low. The problem, from a broadcast point of view, and I was talking to a guy who I was talking to a guy who set up one of the one of the networks that is now run by Global or Bauer, I can't remember. Anyway, but the point is, he said when he set that up as a radio station, it was easy. All he had to do was get pester someone and get an FM license. Once he'd got his FM license, absolutely fine, nothing else to do. Now he has to make podcasts for that material, he has to provide listen again services, he has to make sure it's available on TuneIn Radio, he has to do all the visual effects with it. So it has been become more complicated and in inevitably if it becomes more complicated it becomes more expensive. So commercial broadcasts in particular, but also the BBC and community broadcasts, they have to think very carefully about, you know, we have limited resources, how do we use them? And it's very obvious, for example, from the way in which the BBC has developed the Sounds app, that they see it's important to be able to follow the audience and follow the audience by being able to provide the content that has traditionally been linear streamed radio. They keep providing that because that is still the majority way in which radio is, con is consumed. But the growing importance of podcasts and Listen Again services means they can't ignore it. Despite the fact that it costs money, they have to do it. Now, Laurie, I, th I think it's okay for me to say that in your youth, you set up uh, and even appeared on radio stations that may not have always been broadcasting legally. Uh, I think it's safe to say that because you've said it on television and it's actually being shown again soon. Oh uh, make a note <laughs> in your diaries to record The Last Pirates, Britain's Rebel DJs, on BBC Four. The Corrupt is FM. Kiss FM. But it's on BBC Four, 1am uh, on the night of Saturday the 16th of February and actually We've got a short clip. Oh dear. And see if you can spot anyone you know. As Margaret Thatcher cruised to a second victory in the 1983 election, a new parallel universe was spreading through the airwaves over London. Very, very strong, and it's to our right. When you're running a pirate station, or when we were running pirate stations in the 1980s, the critical thing was not to get caught. Can we go up this road up here? We well, we've got to go around this yeah, road. Yeah, oh, well, yeah. yeah you go around the road. 
So, uh, what are your relationships like with those people from the DTI now, Laurie? Well, it's a funny thing. When I started work at Ofcom about uh, 14 years ago, uh, the first day I was met by someone from Ofcom and uh, she brought me into the building and she said, right, we need to go and get your ID card. And we went to the lifts in the building at Ofcom. The doors of the lift opened, I got in the lift and a voice from the back of the lift said, Hallett, what are you doing here? <laughs> and I said, oh, it was one of the guys that used to chase me around on the tops of tower block roofs. And he said, he said, oh, what are you doing here? And I said, oh, I've got a job here. And he said, good grief, what is the world coming to? <laughs> but actually, we got on very well because the reason I was uh, taken on board at Ofcom was to develop the community radio scheme and to get other types of voices on the radio. And that was the belated and very slow and in governmental bureaucratic terms, that was their way of trying to finally recognise this demand that the pirates had shown. And, you know, some of the pirates became very successful. So KISS FM is with us today with all sorts of different versions of KISS. And I don't think it's like the station was originally, but the world has moved on. So uh, it, it, it's a good relationship. And I think that uh, Ofcom was good at bringing in people who had a different way of looking at the world. And that's important because if you get kind of regulatory capture, where all the regulators come from a particular background, how are they going to understand elements of wider society that they've no experience of? These, the stations that you were talking about on the television programme, were aiming at audiences not catered for by mainstream radio at the time. Many years later, that was, as you were alluding to just then, formalised by Access Radio, now Community Radio in the UK. Um, we can now access loads and loads of different radio stations. And are there still radio stations popping up? Is it still growing? Like, people want to create new radio stations? Well, that's the funny thing. Um, I sometimes wonder why this is the case, but certainly, for example, in the, um, uh, in the pilots for the small-scale DAB, the number of stations which approach us in Norwich and approach the other ones uh, around the country, the other experimental multiplexes, is greater than the capacity we have. So we are turning people away, and some of those radio stations are names you might recognise. So you know, we, uh, we carry Radio Caroline. Uh, we carry Chris Country uh, because it's not available on other multiplexes locally. We carry a variety of different stations. We carry Totally Radio, an experimental radio station from Brighton. Uh, we carry the local community station. We carry the Cellador uh, commercial radio station for Norwich. Um, we carry a wide range of services, but there are always people sending us emails, texting us, tweeting us, and saying, is there space on your multiplex? So the demand is certainly there. The question <coughs> is, do people actually listen to these services Sure, the jury is out on that. One of the problems with small-scale radio in the UK is that there's no effective method of measuring their audience. What we did when Terry and I worked on the community station in Norwich is we got um, uh, uh, proper surveys where we surveyed four or five hundred people randomly selected different demographics, different areas, and we could tell that that radio station had an audience in a town of, a city of... 200,000 people, it regularly had every week 36,000 listeners. So it wasn't doing badly. But in terms of small-scale DAB, we've yet to do those measurements. It hasn't been on long enough. I don't, coming from a podcast background, I don't actually think that any of the radio industry has a good, accurate way of, of finding out how many I would agree. Like, Certainly in terms yeah. of radio, I'd absolutely agree with you. It's so antiquated as to be, you know, yeah. it's becoming yeah. an embarrassment yeah. to the industry, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah. So, which is why face-to-face, -face, 
properly done yeah. audiences where you've got where, where you've you've selected your sample you've got a large enough sample that statistically it is accurate the reason the the reason that the radio industry doesn't do that consistently is because it's very expensive so we would mm. do it once every couple of years right. and you once you've done it in 2007 2009 2011 2013 and you see that the the data is gradually Mm. building, you know that that's pretty accurate. Mm. But certainly Rajar, I would say Rajar is accurate for national services to a quite an ex effective degree because you've got a large enough sample and you're sampling across the country. But when you come to small scale radio stations uh, like a, a commercial radio station for Cambridge, the sample that Rajar uses for Cambridge um, might be fewer than the fingers on my hands. That cannot be statistically accurate. Mm. Mm. Uh, interestingly, we're talking about brought up Rajar, which I wasn't expecting we would, which is, I should quickly stress that how radio stations, the big radio stations in this country, measure their audience figures, and it's the standard way. So Rajar figure day is always a big day in the radio industry. And I've got a feeling it's today. It's today, yeah. It's today. So you might well see tomorrow, or even tonight, stories about Who's done well? Me getting sacked off my show on Friday. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Luke losing his <laughs> Eminently job. Eminently possible, yeah. Um, yeah. But but things like that will will that when you see stories about how many extra um, listeners a certain radio presenter has, that's through the radar figures. That's where they get that. So I wonder if podcasting can play a role in that. Probably because I can see exactly how many people listen, when they listen, how long they listen for, where they are, what device they're on. I wonder if radio stations and radio shows use their podcast figures. As a, as a barometer, maybe, for how, many, how popular their shows are, that would probably be, be, be a fairly accurate representation. And I think smart speakers will play a role in that sure. as well. Once you're listening to it, that will apply for live material, mm. providing we can actually get the data. I mean, we all, some of us know the problem with Netflix, that Netflix says, this series is fantastically successful. And you say to Netflix, so, how many people are listening? And they go, we're not telling you. Mind your own business. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So, so actually, but if that data can be accessed, it will be more accurate. I mean, it's the great thing about any internet-connected device is that, as you say, you know who's listening to what. Downloadable podcasts, you know, historically were a bit of a problem. You download them and then you, well, they've downloaded it, but have they actually listened to it? Yeah. But when you've actually got it, li listening to it stream, it's great. And I think that will change. And, and the problem is that the ways of measuring radio are a product of how radio develops. And the problem with all broadcast media in the traditional sense is that they're a unidirectional path. In other words, I can watch something, but I don't feed back any information about what I'm actually watching. I mean, I can see, for example, smart speakers being used, you know, as everybody knows, I hope, when you've got your Alexa or your Google speaker, it's listening to whatever you are listening to. And the Americans experimented with this for a little while ago, with that actually Alexa could actually be listening to what are you playing on the radio and give that feedback back so that you would actually be able to monitor, oh, that household is listening to Radio 4, that one's listening to Chris Evans, whatever it might be. Because that date, but that it's how you access a massive that row. Yeah. Well, yeah. exactly. It's quite terrifying. It, it, yeah, is. Yeah. it is. But everyone, we've talked about the present, we've talked about the new, we've had footage from the DTI from the 1980s. So what about the future of radio? We're a biased panel. But are we excited about what's coming and why? Luke, what, what excites you about the world of podcasting? I think the barriers to making a podcast are so low as to be really exciting. I think if you decide with your friends that you, you want to make a radio show, effectively it is a radio show, um, there's nothing to stop you. You can pick up your iPhone now, when you're recording this now, but you can pick up your iPhone now and record it. I mean, the universe might decide that it's not very good and no one wants to hear it, 
And, and then obviously it gets a bit more complicated after that. But I think the egalitarian nature of the industry is, is a tremendously exciting thing because to me, I don't want to get sort of all, all of a twist about it, but w when I was a kid, it didn't really feel like I could ever become a radio presenter or a producer or whatever. It felt quite exotic. I mean, I grew up in a small town on the south coast, no, no one in the industry that I knew. But almost now, those barriers have been taken down. So I think what we'll see, what we should see, is anyone who's talented enough and has the drive you know, will succeed. And to me, that's a tremendously exciting thing and something we should all be really embracing of. Naomi, what about you? What excites you about the future of the radio industry? And, and, and before you actually answer that question, I'm going to preempt you because you're working at Virgin Radio and they've just launched a commercial radio breakfast show with no advertising in. Mm -hmm. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so basically from half six till ten, there's no adverts played on Virgin Radio. Um, we're sponsored by Sky, so we have a lot of guests that come in that are um, got different films on Sky and that's sort of how we sort of promote that. But some, talking about the future of radio, I think when I first started uni and I used to go to different events and I'd go to conferences and different talks, there were hardly any women in the room. And I'd look around and there'd be like, I don't know, two or three women. And today, being here and looking around, it's amazing that it's kind of like a 50-50 split. Um, so yeah, I think that's the most exciting thing, diversity having more women in radio and just sort of making, f well, having fun with it, especially like I mentioned earlier with visualization. Um, it's, 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 the, it's just endless. Well theme. said, yeah, brilliant. And, and Laurie, what excites you about the future of radio? Well, as the oldest person on the panel, I'll just tell you a little story, which is that when I decided to get into radio in my teens, <coughs> various people said to me, oh, you don't want to do that, that's a dying medium. Mm. You know, and I've been told that my entire adult life, that radio is a dying medium. Absolute nonsense. For the points that you've both well made, it is becoming, the barriers to entry are going down, not just in podcasting, but also the number of radio stations and the ability for, to get into broadcast radio, the range of people's voices that can be heard, both in terms of gender but also ethnicity and age, is, is always improving. And the range of services, if you like, it's a choice argument. The amount of choice we have out there is growing, the number of platforms is growing, and uh, I think all that leads to the fact that we have lots of opportunities as broadcasters and as listeners, um, and surely that is a recipe for uh, a very successful future in radio. Mm -hmm. Before we wrap up, we've got some time to take a few questions <coughs> from the audience, and Charlotte is armed yet again with the wireless microphone. Um, so remember we're recording this, so Charlotte will bring the microphone round for you to ask your question. Don't forget to tell us who you are too. Um, I, I will let you decide wherever you want to go. Be led. <laughs> we'll try and get through as many questions as we can. Hello, I'm uh, Dr Jamie Gordon. Um, I was listening to my DAB radio in the car on the way up here and I was listening to the media show. And as they said on that show, earlier today Spotify bought two podcasting companies, US companies, Gimlet and Anchor, for $500 million, about £385 million. So do the panel feel that this is uh, an affirmation of the worth of a podcast, or are you slightly worried that it's just become mainstream? Um, I thought it was $200 million. Is it no. $500? It was uh, $250, $230 million yeah. for Gimlet. Oh, okay, and right. The rest was right. for Anchor. Right, so okay, okay. $500 million has just gone into Either the way, it's, it's good money, industry. isn't it? It's decent money. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> decent <laughs> money. I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll take a ten for that now. I, I think, I think um, the American podcast market 
is a lot more mature than the British one. So for those who don't know Gimlet, they, they make um, pretty slickly produced both fiction and non-fiction shows. They have a team of, I believe it's over 100 now, and they're essentially a decent-sized production company that just happened to make podcasts. Their shows have been converted and changed into TV shows, I think there's film deals, all sorts going on. So they're clearly a very profitable company and a decent back. Spotify essentially want to own audio in total. Um, a lot of the guys I work with very closely at Acast, who are the South House Digital, you guys know who they are. They 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 came from over from Spotify. The Spotify have got a real ambition to, to own audio in its entirety now. Um, I can't remember what the original question was. What was it? <laughs> oh yeah, of course I am. Yeah, because I think if my company's worth a, a hundredth of that, I'll be very happy. But I do think in the UK when we see the so we Stakhanov, the company I I co-own. We're not the only game in town, but there are, there are very few companies in the UK that just make podcasts. You, you'll see some, some production companies in Soho in London who will make TV shows or radio shows, and they'll have long-standing deals with the BBC or whatever, Wise Buddha, something else, those kind of guys. But they're not specific podcast-producing companies, whereas we are. And I think as we move along and catch up with the US market, which I think is a lot more mature, both in advertising revenue and in the terms of the shows they're making and the talent they've got, um, I can see it being replicated. I can. I, 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 don't, I don't subscribe to the idea that podcasting is this bubble, like the dot-com bubble. I don't think that at all. Um, I mean, you can use this to, to, to remind me of me saying this in a few <laughs> years' time, but I, I don't think that's the case, so it's very exciting. Any other questions? Hi. Uh, my name's Steve Whiting. I'm a, a web developer from a local company. Um, before Christmas, we heard of a chap who was broadcasted to his wife uh, from his garage and had been for 25 years. Lovely, lovely story. Um, what does the panel think stops a podcast from being perceived as such, and how can a podcast find its audience? So do you mean in terms of how, how does a podcast stop being perceived as just a one-on-one thing? Oh, okay. The first instance, when I first started making podcasts, the biggest challenge was to explain to people what a podcast was. Now, you tell someone, and they say, oh, I already listened to 100 podcasts. And you're like, where was the in-between bit there? Well, why have I not found a bit where people liked podcasts but needed some new ones? Um, and so the biggest issue is cut through. In terms of how a podcast can find its audience, part of the reason we do those videos, and we, and we introduce ourselves through social media, through short form videos, through long form videos, through we put a book out, we've done a theatre tour. Because I understand that you know, trying to listen to a 60 minute piece of audio is quite a big it's quite a big commitment for people. So if you can give them a flavour, you can you can they can find out over a couple of minutes whether they like it or not and then they can move on from there. It turns out it finds its audience. It's difficult. It's just, it's the same as anything. You you need you need to you need to spread the word. I mean, we did it by literally telling everyone we knew, social media, all that kind of stuff. All those sort of traditional, now traditional marketing avenues that don't cost you any money, that they're really the only way forward, I think. And, and then the, something we do at our production company is we cross-promote our shows on our other shows. So if, you, if, you're, if you're listening to um, a show we've got called um, Wrestle Me, which is a WrestleMania show, we think, well, that audience is probably going to skew male, so we'll introduce in, in the form of house ads our other male skewed shows to them through advertising on those shows. So that kind of stuff is how I do it. What's the most successful way that you've engaged with your listeners on your podcast? That's a good question. Um, 
the thing is, I think with our podcast, we got on the ground floor. You mm -hmm. know, it feels a bit like it was a fortunate bit of timing. And really, it's probably something like Twitter, where you just, you, you just join the conversation, you start to own the conversation, you respond to people, you reply, you let them make them feel involved and they feel as part of a community. Because to me, radio is like a very intimate thing, right? You want to join the club, you want to... One of my favorite broadcasters is Danny Baker, and when you hear his show, he makes you feel very welcome. He makes you feel like you're a part of a club and you can be, you can be a part of it just by calling in or just by listening even. And to me, I think that's a really powerful thing, and I think that's something that I always try and, at least try and keep an eye on and remember that there are people out there. Yeah. You know, Terry Wogan said, didn't he, when they said, how many listens have you got? And he said, just one because he wants to be intimate, he wants to talk to those people directly. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's interesting you bring up Twitter and how you, you guys use Twitter. The Football Ramble Twitter account, what I quite like is when you have people on Twitter guessing which one of the Football Ramble guys it is using the Football Ramble yeah. account, yeah. Um, because you'll have your unique personality. I actually changed the password last week. <laughs> yeah, because it's getting a bit, no, it's fine. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's one of the things. People know us for the four of us who present, and, and yeah, they, they have fun guessing who it is. Of us in, yeah. and, and, and Steve, in terms of your original question about making podcasts uh, and, and, and finding an audience, I mean, that's something that Laurie and I talk to our students about whatever audio they're making. It's like, who is your audience? Remember, you're talking to one person, but you're also you're making it for, for multiple people to listen to as well. You just yeah. have to make it suitable. Yeah, I do think you need to have an idea of who you're trying to speak to. I think that's important. Yeah. I think if you... I, I, one of the best pieces of advice I was ever given was work out what you're good at doing and just do it well. Don't try and be all things to everyone. Don't try and, you know, don't try. I don't think of our company as a YouTube company. We, we, we do it to supplement our other stuff. We try and focus on what we're doing well. And the Football Ramble, which is our most popular show, we know really we're targeting young men who obviously like football. And you, you, when you get an understanding of that, you then know what to give them, what's relevant to them, what they like, what they don't like, all that kind of stuff. Uh, any other questions? There's one right behind you, Luke, from someone else called Luke. <laughs> Hello, Luke. Uh, a question for uh, Luke and Naomi. My name is Luke Anthony Walsh. Uh, I'm a broadcast journalism student here at the University of Bedfordshire. I also host my own radio show on Rage Lab. Uh, but my question is for the both of you: What advice would you give me, who I've been pl plugged my trade for what nearly two, two and a half years, and I'm so passionate about radio? Mm -hmm. I'm at a point where I graduate in July. What do I go next from here? Um, I would say don't give up, keep going, because I think a lot of people I do know sort of, you're applying for jobs and you're getting rejections and it, it, that, that happened with me, I kept getting rejections and it's just like that one step ahead, just keep <coughs> going. Um, advice I'd give you is get involved obviously with community radio, um, keep, don't do work for free but go in and do work experience for different stations. Something I found is I had a lot of pay, unpaid work experience but I made sure I, ha I asked the right questions and sort of went in and learned and I sort of went away from that radio station having learnt something from them. Um, just always be keen and just eager. Like one thing I'd say is just don't give up. Be confident in yourself. Yeah, I think that's it. Like just, just keep going because it took me years to get where I am now, but I think you just need to persevere and keep going. Keep asking the right question. Like, even if it's a small question that you think is stupid, just ask it because there's someone in the room that probably wants to know that, the answer to that as well. But honestly, don't give up. Yeah, I think that's good advice. I also think, you know, be reliable. You know, if, you, one of the, if I'm looking for someone to come and work with us, I want a few things. I want, like Woody Allen said, like 90% of success is turning up. That's, that's true. Do what you say you're going to do. If you're going to say you're going to do something, deliver it by a certain time, do it. Because if you don't, it, it causes me problems. And 
in terms of the work experience, absolutely. But it's the thing about, I get asked this question a lot about people getting paid, and, and we always pay people fairly at our company, and we always will do that. But it's, to me, that question is, a, is about a, a crucial understanding of, of what you know your worth is. So mm -hmm. yeah, if I walk into TalkSport on Friday and say, I want the breakfast show, it's a million quid or nothing, they're going to take the nothing option. I understand that. So I understand that in, t in the parameters of my worth, I understand what they are. So if you're coming straight out of uni, you might find that you're not going to earn £500 a day when you first start, but you've got to understand it's part of a process. I, I started off, um, aside from the football ramble and, and, and the podcasting stuff, I started out um, assistant producing the breakfast show at TalkSport, which meant I had to start at four in the morning. I finished at 11, so seven hours, um, and I got paid 70 quid a shift. And I did it for three or four months. And, and it was during the winter. And I don't think I saw daylight at all. Because <laughs> I'd get up, they'd get me a car in, and when I got in, it was dark. There's no windows in the studio. I, the only day that I would see, we walked that back to the tube station. And I'd go home and go straight to bed. So I was getting 70 pounds. Now, would I do that now for 70 pounds shift? Well, no, I wouldn't, because I'm older. <laughs> and I've, you know, my wife would kill me. So <laughs> I, can't, I can't do that. So definitely all that stuff, Naomi said, yeah. but also understand your worth as well. And, and, and You've got to want it. You've got to want to be there. You've got to want to deliver what you say you're going to deliver, and you've got to be reliable. That's 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 my that would be my advice. And I think when you leave uni, the hardest thing is the like bridging leaving uni and actually getting into um, radio and working in radio. Something I would say is carry on listening to podcasts, carry on listening to radio stations, keep getting involved with different things, and like I said, don't give up and like have confidence in yourself. Go into interviews, go into work experience placements. Sometimes you'll go into interviews and you won't get the job, but le learn from it, ask feedback, ask questions. That's mm. the main thing that you should do. And we've still got time for maybe a couple of quick questions. If anyone else in the room <coughs> had anything they wanted to ask anyone on the panel, someone at the back, where's Charlotte? So introduce yourself, please. Hi, my name's John Bradley, uh, and I teach radio to students who are doing BTECs and degree programs as well. I just wondered if I could ask you about how you sort of R&D the sort of podcast you're going to do maybe in the future and mm -hmm. how, you, how you sort of define what, what will be good to do and stuff like that. So just R&D for, for future podcasts, so how would Luke decide what to make a podcast um, about next? To me, I, I think of, I want two, one of two things and preferably both. So I want a really good idea and I want a decent sized name attached to it. So one of those two things is good, both of them is, is ideal really. And then um, it comes down to a number of other factors. So I don't want to cannibalise my existing audience. So I'm not going to, no matter how, who it is, I'm really not going to commission another football show at this point because I'm, I'm only going to take listeners away from my other one and that's pointless. So it needs to fit for us as well and be the right, um, be the right type of show. I also want to have a, I mean, we're a young company, so we're still taking baby steps in this front, but I want to have a fully diverse um, list of shows which, which hopefully showcases the whole of you know, human life across different people's experiences and backgrounds, so diversity is really important. And then also, o over and above that, I want to know really what potential it's got beyond the podcast format. So podcasting will get you so, so far and it will make you money if you do it well and it will get you listeners, but can it, can it, is there a potential there for a producer to come in and, and convert it into a treatment for a TV show? Will it be converted to a book? So, Radio Stokhanov has got to stand and deal with a publishing agent who, who oversees all of our shows when they come on board and whether they're suitable to be turned into books. Can it be converted into a theatre show? Can it, can, it be a, you know, can it do all these other stuff, so, stuff over and above being a podcast? So, so all of those things, really. Um, I wanted to thank you for being a part of the panel, and I do have um, a card 
for each of you. So massive thank you, uh, Laurie, thank and you. massive thank you, Naomi and Luke. Thank you very and much. And we also got you a small gift, which uh, Rosie has <laughs> kindly brought out. So. Um, even if you don't like chocolates, you'll know someone who does. <laughs> no, I don't, does. Like, I don't <laughs> like chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. So here are some uh, chocolates and for our appreciation for you being that's really here. Kind. That's my wife's Valentine present sorted out. Yeah, <laughs> well, there you go. Well, that, that's helpful. Um, that's about it for this special episode of Fantastic Noise. A big thanks to you guys for coming. A massive thanks to our guests, Luke Moore, Naomi Oiku and Dr. Laurie Hallett. A huge thank you as well to Rosie Munro, who did so much to set up this event, to our Deputy Vice-Chancellor, uh, Donald Harley, for his welcome, and Jack Stoll as well, from the Vice-Chancellor's office. Thank you, Jack, quietly in the corner over there, for all your help. Uh, special thanks to the Uni audiovisual team, Don at the back. Thank you very much, Don, for doing that. Uh, and also, Mary Ferguson, Danielle Roberts, Carolina, uh, Charlotte, Julia, Khadija, Bridget, for all of your help, everyone who supported the podcast and this event, thank you. Uh, our artwork was produced by Stu with a double O Elvin. Our announcements were from Freya McCann. Our theme music is by Liam Ayton. Uh, this podcast was produced by me for the University of Bedfordshire's radio team. I'm Terry Lee, and this has been a fantastic noise. <laughs>